Church family, I invite you to open up in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 is going to be our text for today. The title of our message is Christ Alone. Christ Alone. I'm going to read all of chapter 9. Uh, glorious text of God's Word. You follow along and let's enjoy hearing from God. This is the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. The first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, 
now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It's the word of the Lord for his church today. Isn't it so good just to, just to read and listen to God speaking to us? It's his holy word. Today we're going to continue our series through the five solas of, of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. Remember the Protestant Reformation uh, was happened in the 16th century. Uh, it was a time when people decided they were going to compare the teachings of the Catholic Church with what the Bible says. And where they differed, they said, we're going to go with what the Bible says, not with the teachings of the Catholic Church. Um, the doctrine of salvation is one of the main doctrines that had surfaced as being um, completely um, off course there in the teachings of the Catholic Church. It had been twisted into something contrary to, to Scripture, and so we see that. It's one of the main doctrines that's focused upon um, in the time of the Reformation. Now, the main points of teaching of the Reformers can be summarized with five phrases. Now, this is, I think, week three, and, um, and so hopefully you're starting to memorize uh, these, uh, these phrases and working on them with, uh, with some of my children, and uh, they're starting to memorize them. These are called the five solas of the Reformation. Do you remember what the word sola means? It's Latin. Anybody remember? You can say it out loud. Alone, yeah. Only, alone, only, alone. Sola means only, alone. Um, and so uh, we think about part of our message, Christ alone. That's we're getting that word alone uh, from, from that uh, from that. Uh, uh, point of the Reformation. All right, so I'm not going to ask you yet. Maybe next week, see if anybody can say all five of them. We'll have one more week of practice, okay? Uh, but we can look at them together, all right? So the five solas, uh, sola gratia, that is grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, solus Christus, in Christ alone, sola scriptura, scripture alone, and soli deo gloria, the glory of God alone. Okay, maybe next, year, ne- next week we'll be able to say those together um, and uh, maybe not even have to, have to read them. That would be, be pretty good. But um, what I'd really like for you to remember as well is putting all these into a sentence. Because there's not just scatter. They're not just random points. Um, these all help us understand salvation. And so the sentence that we've been learning goes something like this. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. The teaching of Scripture regarding salvation is really wrapped up in that one statement. We need to know it. We need to understand the Scripture that is behind it. And we need to share this good news with others. Listen, that is good news. That is the best news in all of the world. Remember we began by looking at grace alone. Grace alone. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And we learn that salvation is a free gift of God based on his gracious choice to love and save us, not 
our works to earn his love and salvation. And then we looked at faith alone. Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 was our text last week. And we learned that confidence of salvation comes from completely depending upon Jesus for salvation. It's the faith component of salvation. And so we put those two together, the grace and the faith. We could say something like this. Salvation comes to us as a gift. That's the grace part. And is received through dependence upon God rather than dependence upon ourselves, our works. That's the faith part, dependence upon God's grace. So we say salvation is by grace through faith. But that then leads us to this question. Faith in who? Faith in what? How is it that a holy God could give sinners a free gift of salvation? How is it that sinners could be forgiven Pardon. Have our have our slate of sin wiped clean. How, how could that happen? How could we be declared righteous by a holy and just God? It just doesn't seem right. What's the substance of our salvation? It certainly can't be just me going, hey, God, I'm going to believe in you and you should save me. There has to be something there. There has to be something or someone that our faith is in. And the answer to the question, what is the substance of our salvation is simply this. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the substance of our salvation. Jesus is the who and he is the how of our salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. Now, in one sense, even the Catholic Church would have agreed and would still agree that Jesus is necessary for salvation. They wouldn't. If you said, is Jesus necessary for salvation? They would say, yeah, absolutely. Of course, we have to believe in Jesus. The problem is that they didn't believe that he was enough. They want to add to that. And so the reformers wanted to return to what Scripture said, and, and that is that it's in Christ and in Christ alone. Nothing added to Jesus, that he is enough. There's so many places in Scripture we could turn to in order to see that salvation is found only in Christ. I've selected for us today Hebrews chapter 9. Now, you could argue that the whole book of Hebrews is the defense of the Christian claim that salvation is in Christ alone. From start to finish, this book, the book of Hebrews, exalts Jesus as God's only provision of salvation for sinful humanity. Now, in one sense, you could say that's what the whole Bible is about. But Hebrews really focuses in on why it is Christ and Christ alone, and it exalts Jesus in the process. Right from the start, we see that the author of Hebrews is exalting Jesus as the fully divine Son, the creator of all, the sustainer of all creation, the, the only Savior, and the eternal King of glory. That's just in the opening statement of the book of Hebrews. Actually, I want you to look there. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 1. I don't think we could read, study any of Hebrews without at least reading the opening lines of this book. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Notice how he describes Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's a summary of, of the whole book of Hebrews. And it is a beautiful, beautiful word picture of who Christ really, really is. 
The book then goes on, just to give us some context, to make the case that Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the rest that was provided by Joshua after they had been wandering around around the wilderness. Uh, He's better than any other priest. He's a priest of, of a better covenant, and he provides a better sacrifice than any other priest has provided. It's exalting Jesus as the one in whom we must place our faith. Now, do you remember last week we talked about the great longing of the human heart? Anybody remember? What's the great longing of the human heart? Remember? It hasn't changed from last week to this week. It's still the great longing of the human heart. It's peace. Peace with God, right? Peace with God. That's our great longing. We're sinners by nature. And thus our relationship with God is broken. You remember Paul said in Romans that it's through faith in Jesus that we've been reconciled to God, that we can have peace with God. But why? Why? What is it about this person called Jesus that placing our faith in him results in peace with God? What we find detailed in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is our redeeming mediator. He is our redeeming mediator. Jesus is our great high priest who mediates between us and God in such a way that he redeems us from our sin so that we can have peace with God. Let me summarize Hebrews chapter 9 this way. Our need for a redeeming mediator between us and God has been perfectly met in Christ alone. Our need for a redeeming mediator between us and God has been perfectly met in In Christ alone, we have a need because of our sin. Our need is for someone to mediate. And this mediator also needs to be a redeemer. What does that mean? What does it mean to mediate? You know what the word mediate means. To mediate means to act as a go-between. That's that's the way I like to think about it. It's a go-between between two parties who are at odds with one another. And the goal of the mediator is to bring about a, a reconciliation in that relationship. To, to fix the broken relationship. So if you have, uh, if you have two children in a room and, and they start arguing with one another and, and the parent steps in between them and says, well, stop, stop, let's, let's calm down and let's talk about what's going on. What, what's that parent doing? Acting as a mediator. Acting as a mediator. Trying to bring peace into that relationship which has been broken because one child stole the other child's toy. Now, When it comes to us and God, God's not at fault. God hasn't done anything wrong. We're the only guilty party. We're the only party at fault. And we haven't stolen one of God's toys. It's far worse. We've stolen the glory of God, or at least we've tried to. That's what our sin is. We try to focus the attention on ourselves. Sin is me saying, I can do it my way. I don't need you, God. That's trying to take away from his glory. And so... We're at odds with God. There's a break in our relationship. Notice chapter 9, verse 15. We're going to skip around for just a moment. Chapter 9, verse 15. The text says, therefore, he is the mediator. I mean, it's just simple. We don't have to wonder. Is Christ a mediator? Is he not? The text is super clear. He is the mediator. We sin against God. Our relationship with God is broken. We deserve God's wrath. But Christ steps in. To bring about peace between us and God. And that's where the word redeeming then comes into play. Because our sin can't be ignored. We've tried to steal the glory of God. We've sinned against God. That cannot be overlooked. Not forever. We can't stay dead in our sin while at the same time being reconciled to God. We've got to be set free from our sin if we're going to have a reconciled relationship with the God who is holy. 
The word redeem means to buy back. It means to purchase out of slavery. And so Jesus buys us back. He pays the redemption price to set us free from our sin. Look at verse 12, chapter 9, verse 12. The text says that Christ has secured our eternal redemption. I'd love to focus on the word secured, but we kind of talked about that last week with the confidence that we can have in our salvation. But he has secured our eternal redemption. And then skip down to verse 15. The text says, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed. So that's where we get this phrase, Jesus is the redeeming mediator that we need. And so we can say this, we can say this with confidence, that our ultimate need, I know we have all kinds of needs in life, and God cares about all of those needs, but we have one ultimate need. Our ultimate need is met in Christ and in Christ alone. We need a redeeming mediator to fix the relationship between us and God. And Christ is the only one who has done that. But again, why Jesus? Well, I mean, why, is it, why is Jesus so special? Who is Jesus and what has he done that makes him the only way that we can have salvation, that we can have redemption, that we can have this peace with God? There's, there's no way that we can even begin to examine all of this passage and all of its wonderful detail in one sermon. Um, I'd encourage you this week to read through not only this chapter, but I would encourage you, read through the whole book of Hebrews. Give you a little homework. Read through the whole book of Hebrews, maybe kind of slowly, and ask this question as you read. Who is Jesus and what has he done that makes him the only way that we can have salvation? I promise you if, you, if you read slowly through the book of Hebrews and you ask that question, who is Jesus and what has Jesus done that makes him the only one in whom we can have salvation, you're, you're going to have a wonderful time seeing what all the Lord teaches you. But our time remaining, I want to share with you four reasons from Hebrews 9 why we can say with confidence that salvation is found in Christ alone. Now, the first 10 verses of chapter 9, which we read just a moment ago, reminds us about all the human priests that came before Christ. The Old Testament is full of them. We don't know all of them by name. There were many, 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 many human priests, um, including the high priest who would go into the tabernacle or the temple. Whenever you see the word tent in this, that's talking about the tabernacle. The tabernacle was basically a portable temple. It was a tent that was set up, and they could take it down, and that's what they did as they wandered around the wilderness. They, they'd set up the, the, the temporary tabernacle, uh, temple, and they'd tear it back down. So when you see the word tent, um, if you see that in your translation, it's talking about the tabernacle or the temple. And these high priests would go into the most holy place within the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was, and they would offer sacrifice before God, bring that blood in there to appease the wrath of God. But there was a problem with that whole process, okay? There was a problem. Look at verse 9. We see the problem stated very clearly. Those priests offering those sacrifices in that tabernacle could not, what's it say, perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In other words, those priests offering those sacrifices in that tabernacle could not actually and ultimately appease the wrath of God in such a way that guilty consciences, that would be, Every person that guilty consciences would actually be made clear because our relationship with God had actually and forever been fixed. Couldn't do that. Those sacrifices couldn't do that. To put it simply, the mediation of the priest, that was the role of the mediator, to go in between the people and God, that mediation of those priests was not good enough. Why? Because the sacrifices were not good enough. 
because the covenant under which they were operating was not good enough, because the location of their mediation was not good enough, and thus the salvation that their mediation provided was not a complete, good enough salvation. We're going to look at all of those in our four reasons today. But then we have good news. All right. So the problem, here's how it worked in the Old Testament, verses 1 through 9. Verse 9, we get the problem. It cannot perfect our consciences. But then we get to verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent or tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. These are beautiful words. In other words, Jesus has done what no other priest has ever, could ever, will ever be able to do. So what are these four reasons why Jesus is the better mediator? Number one, only Christ mediates with perfect human blood. Only Christ mediates, that means go between, go between to bring reconciliation. Only he does that with perfect human blood. The imagery here is the Old Testament priest, like we said, entering into the inner room of the tabernacle, the most holy place. He would take the blood with him, and when he got in there, he would sprinkle it. He would put it on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat there. Verse 12 says that Jesus entered not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Church, the clear teaching of Scripture from beginning to end, from beginning to end, is that the just punishment for sin is death. And so it's only through the death, and we could even say the bloody death, of a substitute that God can clear us of guilt. Notice the end of verse 22. We're going to skip, skip around a little bit. Notice the end of verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Why did he have to bring this blood in there? It's because that's the only way God will forgive sin. It's through the blood of a substitute sacrifice. Uh, one of my favorite pictures of this in all of Scripture is when the nation of Israel is, um, is in Egypt. They're enslaved in Egypt. And God sends these plagues, right? There's ten plagues. Do you remember what the tenth plague was? It's the death of the firstborn. That's right, death of the firstborn. And the only way that anyone could be rescued was if they took the blood of a spotless male lamb and they took it after they killed the lamb and they spread it over the doorposts of the house. And because that blood was there, the Lord would pass over that home and that firstborn in the house would be spared. But it, but it was a costly sparing right there's there was still a death that took place in that household but it was the death of the innocent in place of the guilty the firstborn was rescued through the blood of a substitute you see the only way god can forgive sin is through the death of the innocent in place of the guilty that's called a substitute sacrifice or it's called substitutionary atonement an atonement is the covering over of our sins a substitutionary atonement and so throughout the old testament history of israel the high priest would bring this blood of an animal into the most holy place to make atonement for the sins of the people the problem was that the blood of animals cannot ultimately substitute for humans, there's a problem there. We need a substitute, but, but we're not animals and animals are not us. There's a very big difference between animals and us. And so the, the, the blood of an animal cannot substitute ultimately for the blood, uh, for the life of a human. And so we need human blood. The substitute sacrifice must be 
Um, it must be human blood. So why didn't one of those other priests maybe shed their blood? And then, then it would have been, then it would have been all been good. They want to have to continue all the animal sacrifices. But see, there's another problem. It can't just be any human blood. Because God is holy, it must be holy human blood. It must be perfect human blood. And that's the problem, because none of the priests were perfect. They even had, and we read this just a moment ago, they had to offer sacrifices for their own sin before they could come before God on behalf of the people. And so their blood would do no good. And that's where Jesus comes to the rescue. That's where Jesus comes to the rescue. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Which is why I said earlier we didn't know both who Jesus is and what he has done. It matters, it matters both who he is and what he has done. He is who he is, fully God and fully man. If Jesus was not fully God and fully man, then his death on the cross would have been no different than all the other people who died on Roman crosses. Jesus wasn't the only person that died on the Roman cross. I mean, there were people that same day that were killed next to Jesus on Roman crosses. And there were probably thousands and thousands of people who throughout the uh, time of the Roman Empire were, were crucified, were put to death on Roman crosses. What makes Jesus' death special was because it was fully God and fully man hanging there on the cross. We already read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, um, this, this description of Jesus that said, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. And then if you were to look at chapter 7, verse 26, you'd, you'd find these words that Jesus is a high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Church family, Jesus is God. But we also see the humanity of Jesus, even in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be made human like us. And then we see both the humanity and divinity of Jesus in chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus, human, tempted like us fully human, but not like us in that he never, ever sinned. Fully human, fully God. So what's that mean? It means that when Jesus brings his blood before the Father as a satisfaction of his wrath towards our sin, he is bringing exactly what we need and what no other priest has ever brought. Perfect human blood. Only Christ mediates with perfect human blood. Here's the second reason why Christ is the better mediator. Reason number two, only Christ mediates the new covenant through his death. Only Christ mediates the new covenant through his death. Remember we said one of the problems with the Old Testament sacrifices was the kind of sacrifice. Another problem with the whole system was that it was operating under the old covenant. But Jesus brings in the new covenant through his death. In verse 15, we see this thing called a new covenant. You see that in verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. This isn't the first time the author of Hebrews has mentioned this new covenant. In fact, if you were to flip back to chapter 8, you would see this new covenant quoted from the prophecy of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. In chapter 8, the author argues that Christ is a high priest of a better covenant than the old covenant established in the days of Moses. And I want to read chapter 8, verses 6 through 7. You could follow along. Chapter 8, verses 6 through 7 says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better 
promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. I want to keep reading, but I'm not going to. Again, remember your homework. Go read all of this this week. What's going on here? The first covenant, which was a covenant mediated through human priests on the basis of animal sacrifices, wasn't what we ultimately needed. It was great that God made that covenant, but but God already knew, even back then, that there had to be a new covenant that was coming. Well, why? Why was that? Well, we just looked at one reason. It's because the blood of animals wasn't good enough, but also the old covenant, it couldn't do something that we desperately need. It couldn't change our hearts. The old covenant couldn't get inside of us and change our hearts. It was all external. It was all external. And we, because we're dead in our sin, remember when we studied Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through, through 10? Because we're dead in our sin, we don't just need behavioral change, outward change. We need our hearts to be changed. And the old covenant could not do that. But there was a new covenant coming which would eternally fix our hearts, eternally fix our relationship with God. In chapter uh, 8, verses 8 through 12, um, that writer quotes from the prophet Jeremiah, and we find this prophecy of the coming new covenant. And I want to read verse 10. And here in verse 10, we see that this new covenant will affect an inward change resulting in a restored relationship with God. God says, chapter 8, verse 10, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. That's language for heart change. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. The the laws were just written out here. He says, I'm going to write them on their hearts. I'm going to change their hearts. And we see that this is going to be possible because God's going to forgive their sin under the new covenant. If you go to chapter 8, verse 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That is the new covenant. Inward change because God's going to actually and forever, eternally forgive us of our sins. It's going to be how? How is he going to enact this new covenant? Through the death of his son. And that's the point of chapter 9. We'll go back to chapter 9 now. Verse 15 through 17. It's going to be through the death of his son that this new covenant comes to life for us. Verse 15 says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since, note the word, a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. A death has occurred. And then verse 16 and 17 explains why it was necessary for Jesus to die in relationship with covenant. It says, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes place only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. We we know that. We make wills. We draw up wills. But when did they actually take effect? When the person who made the will dies. A death has to take place. And so the new covenant is like a will, where those who God calls to salvation are promised this eternal inheritance. Right? That's a lot of times what a will is about. It's about an inheritance that's coming. We're promised an an eternal inheritance, but just like with the wills today, it doesn't go into effect until the one who made the will dies. Christ, the author of the new covenant, had to die. And he did die. He completely laid down his life for us. And what's the result? For those who are called, the text says, those who are called, those who believe in Jesus for salvation, receive this promised eternal inheritance. The new covenant comes into place. What is this promised eternal inheritance? Well, it's an everlasting, reconciled relationship with God 
where we get to dwell with God in his kingdom forever and ever. Exactly what we do not deserve. Only Christ mediates the new covenant through his death. Then, if we follow, keep following along in chapter 9, the writer takes us back to the tabernacle in verses 18 through 22. And he reminds us that even the old covenant required blood. Even the old covenant required death. Moses had to inaugurate the old covenant by covering parts of the place of worship with blood. We talked about that. We read in verse 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 22 um, there about the, the, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. See the text there. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. When every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and water and scarlet, wool, hyssop, sprinkled with both the book itself and all the people. I mean, this is a bloody picture. I mean, he's just he's throwing blood all over the place, right? This is this is gross. This is this is bloody. This is why the world doesn't want to talk about. That's why our society doesn't want to talk about the substitutionary atonement of Christ. We want to sing songs about the blood of Christ. Because it reminds us that we are sinners and our sin must be atoned for, that God is a wrathful God. This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you in the same way he sprinkled both the blood, uh, the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. I mean, just blood everywhere. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Those verses serve to kind of end the previous point about the requirement of death requirement of blood, but they also provide a transition to the next reason why Christ is the better mediator. Let me give you reason number three. Only Christ mediates before God in heaven itself. Only Christ mediates before God in heaven itself. Remember, we're continuing to ask this question. Why is Jesus better than all these other priests? Why do we need Christ? Why is it only Christ alone? Well, one of those reasons is because he mediates before God in heaven itself. In verse 21, the author speaks about the earthly tabernacle. Moses sprinkled blood on it and all the vessels used in worship. And that was good for the time being. But the earthly tabernacle was only an imitation of the real thing. The earthly tabernacle was only an imitation of the real thing. It was God's way of allowing sinful people to enter into his presence. But it was only a copy. It was only a copy. Now, which would you rather own? Which would you rather own? A copy of one of Leonardo da Vinci's paintings or one of his actual paintings. Now, I don't, I don't care if you like his artwork or not. Which one, if you're going to own one, which one would you rather own? You'd rather own the real one. Why? It's worth way more, right? Even if you don't like it, you could sell it and make a whole lot more than you could off a copy. The original is always better than the copy. Prince Moses and all the priests after him entered a copy of God's eternal dwelling. That's what the tabernacle and then the temple were. They were copies of God's eternal dwelling. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. Jesus didn't enter the copy of God's eternal dwelling. Where did Jesus enter? He entered heaven itself to offer sacrifice on our behalf. Look at verses 23 and 24. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. He's talking about the tabernacle, the temple, the copy, which humans made. Not into places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Did you catch that? Jesus went into the original, not the copy. Jesus entered heaven 
He went into the very presence of God. God didn't come down and appear before Jesus in the tabernacle. Jesus made an appearance before God in God's very presence. He walked to the throne room of Almighty God to mediate on our behalf with His blood, ushering in the new covenant. No one has ever done that for you. No one else has ever done that for you. No one else will ever do that for you or for me. And how was he allowed to do that? Verse 23 says, because he came with a better sacrifice. He came with his own blood, the blood of a perfect human. He came with his own death, the death that inaugurated this new covenant. Only Christ mediates before God in heaven itself. Only Christ. There's one more reason I want us to see as to why Jesus is the better mediator. Why it is that Christ alone is the one in whom we can have salvation. And this, this reason really encompasses all the other three, okay? It's almost a, kind of a summary of the other three in a way. Because Jesus offered perfect human blood, because he, he, he died a death that inaugurated the new covenant, because he went into heaven itself to mediate between us and God, we can say this, only Christ mediates a complete salvation. Only Christ mediates a complete salvation. Remember, we're comparing Jesus as the mediator uh, as the mediating high priest with all these other priests who had come before. Each of those high priests had to enter the most holy place of the tabernacle or temple once a year. Every year, a new atonement. Every year, a new sacrifice had to be made and brought into the presence of God. Why? Because the sacrifice of the previous year wasn't good enough. To provide a complete salvation. The priest the year before was not good enough to mediate a complete salvation. But notice what God's word says in Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 25 and 26. Look there. Now remember verse 23 through 24 said that Jesus didn't enter the earthly tabernacle. The copy of heaven. But he entered heaven itself. And then pick up in verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. As the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see the difference. You see the difference. All the priests before Jesus had to enter year after year to make sacrifice for sin, but not Jesus. He appeared once for all. That's a phrase we see repeated multiple times in chapters 9 and 10. If you're if you're somebody who likes to highlight in your Bible, highlight all the once for alls that you see in chapter nine, verse 10, chapter nine, verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy place. Chapter nine, verse 26. He's appeared once for all at the end of the ages. Chapter 10, verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Why can the sacrifice of Jesus be called a once for all sacrifice? It's because it actually accomplished salvation. It gives us a complete salvation. There's nothing more that has to be done. There's nothing more that has to be added. There's nothing that we have to do or have to ask anybody else to do for us. He has done it all. Jesus paid the full redemption price. Jesus completely satisfied God's wrath toward our sin. There's no more sin to be atoned for. That's the point. When Jesus offered his perfect blood in the very presence of God, sin, our sin is done away with. There's no more sin. That has to be atoned for. Think about it. Year after year, decade after decade, century after century, the high priest walked out of the most holy place thinking, well, that's done until next year. Right? That's what he walked out thinking. That's done until next year. But when Jesus hung upon the cross, offering his perfect human blood in the very courts of heaven, what did he cry out? It's finished. 
And there was no until next year. That's the good news of the gospel. It is finished. Once for all, sacrifice had been made. But not only can we say that Jesus' mediation provides a complete salvation because there's no more sacrifice that has to be made, we can also say that Jesus' mediation provides a complete salvation because he's going to come back. And he's going to finish what he started. He's going to finish saving us. You say, well, Zach, I thought, I thought you said it was finished. So why would you say that he's going to come back and finish saving us? Well, what was finished was the sacrifice. There's no more sacrifice that has to be made. It's over. But our salvation is not yet complete. Well, how is it not yet complete? Look around you. Where are you at? Are you standing in the very presence of God or worshiping Him, the sinless body, removed from a broken world, worshiping Him in the new heavens and the new earth? No, that hasn't happened yet. It's the not yet part of our salvation. But it's not a question as to whether or not it's going to come to fruition. Because that body that hung on the cross rose up from the dead. And he's coming back one day. Look at chapter 9, verse 27 through 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Church, not only is Christ the one who is offered, the only one who has offered a perfect sacrifice, he's also the only one who's risen from the dead, who's alive today, who's coming back to get us, to take us to our eternity eternal inheritance that's promised under this new covenant to get all who are eagerly waiting on his return. Christ alone paid the price for our sin and Christ alone is coming back to get us. And then when we're standing before the once slain, now risen Christ with all the multitudes of the redeemed from every nation and tribe and people and language crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, then our salvation will be complete. Christ came and died. He's coming back to complete what he started. Only Christ mediates a complete salvation. Church, anything that says we need to add something to what Jesus has done is nothing less than a false gospel. This is the good news of Jesus. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, all for the glory of God alone. You can only be saved if God gives you a gift of salvation. You can only receive that gift if you place your faith in Jesus Christ. It's not through your works. It's in the crucified and risen Jesus that we can have salvation. There's nothing that you can do or need to do to add to what Jesus did on the cross. So many people think that. I don't want you to ever fall prey to thinking that. We don't have to add to what Christ has done on the cross. You don't need to go through an earthly priest to be forgiven of your sin. You don't need to go through a pastor to be forgiven of your sin. You just go through Jesus. We've got a high priest in heaven who is the redeeming mediator between God and man, and he is willing to plead his blood on your behalf. As the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, For there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so let me ask you if you've never cried out to Jesus for salvation, would you do so today? If you're in any way trusting in 
in something other than Jesus or Jesus plus something else, then you need to, as we talked about last week, completely depend upon Jesus for your salvation. You need to say, Jesus, you have done enough. You are the great high priest. You have offered a sacrifice that no one else has ever offered. You have inaugurated a covenant that no one else could inaugurate. You have gone into a place with a sacrifice that no one else could ever go. You went into heaven itself and you have provided a complete, not partial, complete salvation. So I am trusting you today. There's no other way to be saved. That's why Peter and John, when they were threatened and they were ordered to stop talking about Jesus, they said, the, 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 the official said, you can talk about God, you can talk about Scripture, you can talk about whatever you want, just don't talk about Jesus. That was the one thing that they t- were told not to talk about. And they were threatened with their lives. And you know what? You know what they said? They said, sorry, we're not going to do that because there's only one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Because there's only one high priest who has done what Jesus has done. Friends, don't look anywhere else. Don't put your hope in anyone else. Our need for a redeeming mediator is met perfectly in Christ. Would you believe in him? Do you live for Him? Do you worship Him? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word that teaches us truth about how we can be reconciled to You. And it's only through Jesus. God, right now, there's nothing more important than for every single person in here to make sure that they are trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. And God, if there's someone right now who's never said, God, I need you to save me and I need you to save me through Jesus and I'm going to trust what Jesus did to rescue me because nothing else can save me. I can't save myself. No, nobody else can save me. No priest, no pastor, no, no mother or father or grandmother or grandfather, no son or daughter can save me. No friend can save me. Nobody can save me but Jesus. God, there's somebody right now who's never trusted in Christ. I pray pray that right now they will cry out to you in their hearts for salvation. They don't have to go through me. They don't have to go through anybody else. They go through Jesus. Because He has done enough. He has done everything that we need. God, for those of us who have believed in Jesus, Lord, I pray that Christ would be the most important thing in all of our lives. That we would exalt Jesus. That we would live for Jesus. That we would worship Jesus with every thought, with every word, in all of our relationships, with every action that we take. May Christ be the center of it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.